Hi, everyone. Oh, this feels great. How are we doing? Good. How many of you fondly remember middle school? The key word there, fondly. It was rough, right? Is middle school rough right now? Eh, okay. Here's how it was with me. I was great going, in, going coming out of elementary. I think I peaked early, around sixth grade. And it's been downhill ever since, a long, fast descent uh, to the subterranean levels. In middle school, I started at a school where people, I knew no one. And then at the school, everybody else that was there had gone to elementary school all the way up. And so here comes newcomer Brad. Now, middle school, I was about 5'1", and and I had a a more round shape. And so this was was me. Um, And then here's, I'm I'm trying to dance around this because it wasn't a happy time. Uh, Middle school was a time where I was really, really picked on. I was called names. I was really good at soccer which made the other guys who were really good at soccer upset when I began to beat them in soccer. And one of them decided he was, I mean, he peaked really early. Uh, he was like already 5'9 and huge. He, might, he looked like he played offensive line for the then LA Rams. And uh, he decided he was going to push me and, 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 and in his turn, and basically beat me up without my teacher knowing. So this was junior high. I developed names in junior high. I had a condition where my, the tissue in my chest grew, uh, and they didn't know why. And so they would call me names about that. They would, they would try and, and, and just make my life really, really rough. And here's the thing about the middle school time. That's when you're formed, right? A lot of your things about you are sealed around that age. They say from... Zero to seven, you're like a sponge. And then from the next age group, you're even more of a sponge. I don't know. I'm not the the therapist is my wife. She's downstairs. Uh, You can ask her all about this. But that time, I picked up some names and some things about myself that I ended up carrying with me even to this day. I see a lot of people nodding. Yeah, we get it. That's called shame. The shame that, that you care, that you are defined by something else besides what God defines you as. Shame says you are this. You are not good enough. Shame says that you look weird and therefore you're weird. Uh, shame says that you'll never amount to anything. And it's, sometimes it's things you can't control. Uh, sometimes it's because you're a victim of something else. Uh, but we end up carrying that shame. And I'm not meaning to have a, a counseling session with everyone today, but I want to talk about this kind of shame that we have and that many of us still carry. We're defined by a lot of things. And most of those things that we are defined about aren't even true of us. I'm not this little five foot nothing person in middle school that, that was just picked on. Uh, that's not who I am. That's not who I was. And you're not either. And so as we continue this whole idea of peace and shalom, one of the places we have to talk about is this peace within yourself. Last week we talked about peace with God, that God's not angry. 
And if you look closely throughout scripture, it would be really hard to prove that he was. God is from the beginning of time trying to break into our realities and meet us where we are. Why? Because he loves us and he speaks our language. And if you curious of what that is, it's all on the podcast. It's all on the video storage. Go watch it. God's not mad at you anymore. So we don't have to carry this load of God being mad. But however, sometimes we're good with God not being mad. And then we're really good with our friends being cool with us and that, that they're not angry with us, that we have a peace with God, we have a peace with our friends. But oftentimes what comes last is, is their peace within your soul. So God comes in, you, you say yes to Jesus, he comes in, he awakens your spirit, the heart, the, the deepest part of you, he awakens it. Paul says, awaken my spirit. And then from that spirit out comes, out grows a transformation that takes over your soul. Your soul is where you get your mind, your will, your emotions, your personality, what you think about yourself. We often think the soul is the deepest part of us. No, 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 that's the spirit. The spirit transforms the soul. And so as you see, God has made peace between you and your spirit. The next step we have, and this is why the gospel is such good news, is peace between yourself and yourself, which is oftentimes the hardest place to find peace. When the reality of peace with God begins to break through your lives, here's what you'll see. You'll see that you take yourself off the hook for all the things that you've blamed yourself for in the past. Because if God doesn't blame you, why should you? Why should you carry that? In other words, uh, this, this peace is the most transformative peace that we can ever have. Because the peace of God takes root and you begin to live not the way your friends defined you, but the way God defines you. Which is loved, whole, as a child, never going to abandon you never going to label you other, anything other than what he sees in Christ. When he sees you, he sees Jesus. We weren't meant to live in a shameful way. The presence of Christ is what allows us to have peace within ourselves. His grace reclaims our calling. It reclaims us by showing us grace. And today we're going to look at some Genesis we're going to look at Exodus, because if you don't look at Exodus, did you really study the Bible? And then we're going to go to a God. It was a joke, sorry. Still can't tell if y'all are laughing. Um, then you go from Exodus, and then we're going to go to John and talk about the woman who was hauled out because she was framed. Okay? So let's talk about Genesis a little bit. In Genesis 2, it's important that we realize that in Genesis is our starting point. In the beginning, God created What? heaven and earth. Let's just say God created everything. What was the word that God used to describe everything after he was created? Good. Thank you, Bev. Everybody else, watch Bev. She said it was good. Everything that God created at the end of Genesis 1, he says, it is not only good, very good. It is awesome. That's how I would translate it. This is so good. I'm so excited about what I've created. That's what God was saying. Then he goes on rest. He takes the Sabbath. He rests. Why? Because you can't improve on this. This is exactly what it was meant to be like. It's important that we see our starting points right there. In the beginning, God created 
us as we were meant to be, man, woman, everything works in conjunction with each other. In the image of God, he created man and woman. This is how it was. Genesis 2 is a reframing of Genesis 1 and a little bit more poetic, okay? So when we talk about our starting point, this is where we begin. Your story begins right here. Genesis 3. It, 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 maybe we'll just go through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter. How, how would you like that? Genesis 3 comes along. We're introduced to something. Okay? But there's this key verse in Genesis 2 that I want you to look at. And the entire bit of how good things were are shown by this verse. Genesis 2.25. And every middle school boy, high school boy when I was growing up would look at this and giggle. Adam and his wife, Eve, were naked and they felt no shame. Okay. You were intended or we were intended to run around naked in a garden with no shame. That's how it was supposed to be. And everyone's eyebrows go, really? Okay. This is how we are intended. Now, the author is stating a reality. This is how they were. But there's also a bit of a metaphor there. When you're naked, are you able to hide anything? No. There's nothing that comes between you and your fellow person. And there's nothing that comes between you and God. You are completely exposed. You have no clothes on. Uh, if you don't have any clothes on, you run down the street right now, not only would you be streaking, but you would be probably hauled in for indecent what? Exposure. Okay? They were completely exposed. And did you see what they felt? They were fine with it. They felt no shame. This metaphor, is, it, it shows us that in this place, they were in the most vulnerable state. They had no, nothing to hide, no place to hide it, and they were completely fine with it. But then something happened. Satan, and we see him in the presence of a servant, serpent, not servant, uh, serpent comes in and begins to slither around and he begins to bring up these lies. Now remember what God told Adam and Eve. You're great. You're good. What Satan do? Genesis 3, 5, he begins to tell them these lies that they weren't. And he says in 3, 5, for God knows... That when you eat of this tree, from it your eyes will open, and you will be like God. You will know good and evil. Do you see the subtle lie here? Here, Adam and Eve think that they're enough. But then Satan comes in and puts this little tiny, like, poppy seed of doubt in their mind and says, you might not be that great. Do you see how you think you might be lacking? You don't have it all. You're, you're not like God. Uh, the, you, you don't know everything. The seed of doubt that Satan gives them tells them that they're missing something. So they go from naked and unashamed to now they're naked and then wondering, am I incomplete? Do I have everything that I need? Satan began to pick on the insecurities and he persuades her slowly and slowly to eat the fruit. In Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. So here she is. She's thinking, I don't have everything I need. She ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her 
and he ate it. He's just as guilty as her. Guys, don't go home to your wives and say it's all your fault. You never win that argument. I've tried. Uh, he's, he was right there with her the entire time. Why didn't he stop her? So let's blame Adam as well. The man and woman knew what they were doing when they ate it. They believed that doing this would make them complete. But the problem was they were already complete. And that, that they, would, they would now be better than they were. But their plan didn't work. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Not only did they know that they were naked, but now they feel something that they never felt before. Shame. Then they had to cover themselves. These fig leaves acted as a barrier between both of them, a covering between themselves, but also this covering between them and God. They knew that something was broken. They knew that they weren't themselves. They didn't, never wanted to be exposed again. When they chose to eat the fruit, they chose to define themselves by Satan's definition of them and not God's. You following? God said they're good. Satan says you're not. I'm going to eat this. So now I trust the deceiver instead of the one who created me. Now they think they're not enough. Verse 8, chapter 3. This will all hopefully make sense. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And, he, and they hid from God among the trees. But the Lord called out to them, where are you? Then Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Now watch this. And who told you you were naked? You see the question? Who told you that you weren't enough? Who told you that you had something to hide? God's kind of a little bit upset here. Here he's made this perfect creation. He's, he loves them completely. There's nothing wrong. They are lacking nothing. And now who ruined this for you is how I read this. This is a perfect father's response. The other night I was on a Zoom meeting and I came back in to get more coffee because you need coffee on Zoom because you just fall asleep. Okay, so I came in to get more coffee and as I'm walking in, I walk into a very loud, streaking two little boys of mine. Now, if you don't have children, this sounds weird. If you have children and they happen to be boys, you get it. This happens. They were, we have a, a kitchen that has this weird little island and they were running around in circles, completely naked and loving it. Okay, Judah's five, Caleb's two. They're both running around yelling naked. I look up at Carrie and I was like, what is happening? And she goes, they started by running and now they're, they're streaking. It's the way it is. Now, Caleb's not potty trained. And so you're, you're playing with a, a, a loaded weapon there. I mean, it, all of a sudden, it can go south real quick. And so we're watching and, and it's gone south real quick. But I get this because I look at that and go, that's hilarious. They have no inhibitions. The other night, we were at a friend's house for dinner. Here's Caleb. He walks up to us and says, off. We take his shirt off. No big deal. Then he goes, off. All right, you have a diaper on. And then he walks around. And he comes back and goes, off. There's a line, bud. But here they are. They have no inhibitions. They, they are stark naked in the world. And they could care. They couldn't care less. 
this is how we're meant to be. Now, there's this innocence with them that I know, well, maybe given that I'm a guy and I know how streaking goes, there's this innocence in them that won't, that, that, that at some point will be harmed. And then they'll be afraid of their bodies. They'll be afraid of who they are. And maybe sometime in college when they're pledging for a frat, they'll go streaking again at some point. We've all driven through UW at that time of year. But there's, there's, a, there's going to be something where that, that little spark in them where they are completely comfortable in their own skin is going to be extinguished. And I think about that as a dad, and I'm already mad. Because here they are. Not a care in the world. Confident little boys. Caleb will try and hide from you, but he's just playing a game. Judah, there's nothing holding him back. But something's going to happen. And I see this in the story of Adam and Eve. Nothing held them, nothing held them back. But then the lies start coming. When did the lies start happening to you? When did all of a sudden you start going, I'm not enough? What happened? Who said it? What, what did you do? What did they do to you? What, can you remember it? Probably if you think hard enough or maybe you don't have to think too hard. Do you remember when that was whispered into your ear? It's a lie. Yet we define our lives by these lies and what ends up happening is this Genesis 3 story about us with fig leaves begins to replay over and over and over again in our lives and we start putting on layers after layer as if it's 25 degrees outside. We just put on layers because we're afraid that somebody might see us. This is what happened. We were not meant to live like this. God made you. He loves you. And the definitions of somebody else to you aren't his but we're trapped by it. Now we see this lived out in several stories in scripture. Uh, we see this lived out by the person of Moses. I love the story of Moses. Moses, we know that if you've seen Prince of Egypt, you get it. You've been there, you've seen this. Moses grew up in a, in a royalty. He was an adopted son into the Pharaoh's family. This wasn't where he began. If you know the story of Moses, he was put away, or he was put in this plastic, or this plastic, they didn't have plastic, this reed basket and pushed down the river by his sister. He was supposed to be killed because he was under a certain age. And then he, the Pharaoh's daughter found him and then brought him in and said, and began to raise him as it was her son. This is where Moses began, but it didn't stay that way. If you remember the story of Moses, he begins to figure out who he was and that he didn't really belong in this family. He was more aligned with the Hebrew people. And so he walks out one day from his palace and he finds out in Exodus chapter 2 that this Egyptian man is beating this Hebrew slave. Uh, Exodus 2.11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out, out from, uh, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their land in hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that way, so it's kind of this thing. Okay, Moses looked around. He killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked them what was wrong. 
Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. What I did must have become known. Do you see this? Moses is caught in something. He tried to hide the wrongdoing that he had. A lot of us, when we, uh, when we think of shame, we think of something wrong that we did. That, that one moment where, where you're, you, you got away from yourself. That one moment where you made that decision. So here's Moses. His anger got the best of him that day. He went down. He killed that Egyptian. He, he made a mistake. He thought he took care of it. He thought he was hidden. He thought he, he checked his, his six good enough and looked around and nothing was... He thought he was fine. But now he's exposed and now he, knew, he knows he's in trouble. So as you see the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he begins to run away. He begins to, to hide. Pharaoh is going to kill him. And so he has to get as far away from Egypt as possible. That's the thing with shame. When, when you're convinced that you're bad, it, you tend to do drastic things to get away from it all. Moses decides he's going to give up rather than overcome. And so he goes as far away as he can to a land called Midian, in the land of Horeb. One writer called it a horrible place. I thought that was funny because I like puns. But it was a terrible place, kind of in the region of Mount Sinai when you get to that later in Exodus. Moses was as far as you can get. And Moses went from dining at the Pharaoh's dinner table to now counting the heads of sheep. He went from the top place of society down to what we would think as the bottom place of society. Counting sheep that weren't his. He'd made a mistake. This is who he is. He is now defined as his mistake. And God isn't going to use him anymore. And so Moses is going on with, with his life. And then one day Moses decides he's going to walk this way one morning. And he comes into a burning bush. Now Moses allowed the lies in his head to become so loud that it took God doing a miracle to get his attention. Sometimes the lies in your head are so consuming you that you can't hear God speaking through his still small voice through it. This was Moses. How many times had he walked by that single bush? How many times had God tried to get his attention? Now God is doing something drastic. This bush is on fire, but it's not on fire. Moses looks at it. This is strange. So he walks up to it. He takes his shoes off because now not only is this bush burning, it's talking. And you wonder what Moses ate before he went out that morning. And, and this, this whole thing isn't making sense. And Moses walks up to the bush. The bush says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And if I'm Moses, I'm thinking, this is holy ground? This place is terrible. This place is like Tacoma. And he walks in. And uh, sorry, Tacoma people. He walks in and then, and then God begins to talk to him. God says, Moses, I've heard my people crying. I've seen the injustices that's happening. I'm going to do something about it. And you can see Moses going, great, go for it. Do you need my approval? And then God says, I want to use you to do it. Verse 10, so now Moses, go. I'm sending you to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. 
And I love Moses' response. Verse 11. Uh, who? The first, first thing Moses says. Who? You're sending who? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out? You, you think I'm going to do this? I've tried this before, Moses is saying. 40 years ago, I tried this before. It didn't work out well then. It probably work out, won't work now. He's 80 now. 40 years ago, Moses would have made sense in that time. He's younger, stronger. But now he's 80. He's a felon. He's fleeing from the law. And now you want me to go back, Moses says. God says, but I'll be with you. Moses says, no thanks. I can't show my face in those places. They won't believe me. Find somebody else. Excuse after excuse after excuse showing us that Moses is a lot like you and I, where we like to find reasons why we can't do something based upon something we've done in the past. Then finally, in Brad's translation, God says it this way. Listen, Mo, I want you. Mistakes and all. I want you. You're perfect for this job. But Moses doesn't believe this. His shame is so built up in his life that he's afraid, not of what Pharaoh might think of him. He already knows what Pharaoh might think of him. But what are his fellow Israelites going to think about him? Are they ever going to believe him? He's a mistake. In Exodus 4, 6 and 7, God says this. He gives him signs in order to prove themselves. The first one he says, put your staff on the ground and it turns into a snake. There's a lot of symbolism there about the original lie of the serpent. The shame that happened to the serpent. And now Moses is able to grab that serpent and it turns back into a rod. God is redeeming the story of Moses slowly by slowly. And then the next sign he gives in verse verse 6, the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak, inside your shirt. So Moses does this, puts his hand in there, and he takes it out and he pulls his hand out. And so Moses puts his hand in his cloak and then he took it out. The skin was leprous, leprosy, a skin disorder. It become white as snow. Can you imagine Moses doing this? It was fine. I do this. It comes out. It's falling apart. And then God says, now, put it back into your cloak. And Moses, yeah, sure. I've got to hide this thing. So Moses put it back into his cloak. And when he took it out again, it was completely restored. These signs were given so that the people of Israel would believe in what Moses is saying, that he has surely seen this God, this Yahweh, the God who hears, the God who is on his way. But also, it's a sign to Moses. Look, I've redeemed your story. You saw it with the snake. The serpent there, no power over you. I'm also redeeming your story by this stuff that's hidden, that you keep close to your heart. The stuff that you are afraid to show. I see it. It's not stopping me. I still want to use you. Moses, stop believing the lie that you were told in Genesis 3. Moses, stop believing the lie that you're never going to be good enough, that you've messed up. Moses, stop benching yourself in your story. That, that part of your story doesn't define your entire life. Moses, you're in the game. God wants to use him. Even the ugliest part of Moses, he wants to use. We're all like Moses. Even the ugliest parts of your life, the part where you can't control the private section of shame, that, that thing that is secret, that no one knows about, God knows, and he looks at it and goes, I can use that. 
that, that disability that you might have that you're afraid that other people might see, that part, you can use that. Anybody, anywhere, any form, God can use. Our filter is different from God's filter. The shame that Moses held was keeping him from stepping into the life that God had for him. And all of us are a lot like Moses. We define ourselves by what we're hiding from. We define ourselves by our fig leaf after fig leaf, denying and spinning anything that tells us that we're of any worth. Yet Moses' life tells us a different story, that we don't have to live that way. One that says you're still of worth. And you're not defined by those. This story of Moses grabs on to, to me, especially. There's something here that even though I'm defined to a lot of people by mistakes, God doesn't see me by my mistakes. He sees me by Christ. And Paul says this in Corinthians. It's not going to be on the screen. He says, when God looks at you, he sees Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So he sees you through the filter of what Jesus did, not the filter of what you have done. It's hope for all of us. There's another story in scripture, one that has abuse, that has failure, that has shame, but it's all wrapped around in this idea of grace. Jesus had been teaching. He had come down to the Temple Mount, and the leaders of the day uh, didn't like what he was saying. He was challenging the way that they ran their temple. He said a couple times, this temple, destroy it, I'll rebuild it. Remember that? He's saying, this isn't it. And so they came out and they wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to get him to stop teaching. So while he's teaching, they bring a woman out, they they parade her through town, and they put her in front of Jesus in order to trap Jesus. Here's the condition that they bring her in. They say she's been cheating. Teacher, in John 8, 4, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. It's a harsh accusation. Caught in the act. Don't think about it too long. It is what it is. It says what it says. They caught her in the act of adultery. Right in the middle of it. They found her. She was caught in the moment as if it was, aha, adulterer. Which begs a whole set of questions. How long? Did these teachers of the law wait? Did they set her up? Did they know what was going on? Did, did they have a, 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 this, whole, this whole thing planned out? Where's the guy in this story? It takes two to commit adultery. Where's the other one? But no, they bring her out. There's a whole thing going on here. They're trying to trap Jesus. This public or this private moment was turned into a, a public spectacle. I can see them dragging her through the streets, everybody looking around, seeing her going, oh, she's an adulterer. And the thing with this is these offenses aren't forgotten. Mor- moral failures have long shelf lives. And so she wouldn't be able to hide from this shame. What she was doing, what was absolutely wrong according to the law of Moses, it is wrong today. But what the leaders were doing in response was completely despicable. According to Jewish law, in order to prove adultery, which was an offense that you could have been stoned for and killed for, you had to have two witnesses, two eyewitnesses, which leads to the question, 
how likely is there to be witnesses to all of this? So you have to wonder how long, again, how long did they watch before they barged in? How long did they take to break it up? Where's the man? She's being used as bait. In John 8, 5, it says this, and they're telling Jesus this. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, notice the women in this event doesn't matter to them. She's just a pawn in their trap. They don't care about the accusation. They don't care that they're going to ruin her. They don't pay any attention to reputation. So you can kind of feel for her. Perhaps you've been in this kind of situation. She knows she's been framed, but who's going to believe her? She wants to uh, pull a Moses and run to Midian, but how is she going to get there? She wants to beg from mercy, but these people aren't defined by mercy. So you could see her standing in the temple square, maybe glazed over, just like, I can't believe this is happening, the shame in her face. And as you read this, uh, if you're like me, you want Jesus to do something amazingly miraculous to these hypocritical leaders, like throw rocks at them instead or beat them around with the cord of whips. But instead, watch what Jesus does. He moves very subtly. They were using this question to trap him in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I love the imagery here. Some authors have pointed out the same finger that carved the Grand Canyon was writing in, in the dirt. The same finger that wrote the tablets in, on the top of Sinai was now writing something. And so this is a beautiful moment where God is now writing in the dirt. The same finger that carved the shorelines is writing in the sand. And as he's writing, he speaks. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground at this. Those who heard began to go away one at a time. First, it was the older ones until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. The once loud, arrogant crowd leaders left and instead of their accusations being heard, you hear the stones dropping in the sand, thud, thud, thud. And all you can hear in the courtyard is the shuffling of feet away. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? This is the first time she speaks. No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. If you've ever wondered how God reacts to your mistakes... There's no doubt that what she did was his mistake. Jesus says, leave your life of sin. So she's living in this circular lifestyle of sin. Jesus says, get away from that. You're living this way. But have you, if you've ever thought of that, you can't get away from this cycle, whether it's adultery, gambling, addiction, pornography, and that you're in this trap and you think, it's too far, I'm too far gone. What's, the, what's Jesus say? There's hope. You don't have to carry around this weight of sin and shame anymore. Go. I don't condemn you. This is how God reacts to our failures. Now, I don't know about you, but I need this reminder quite often. My mistakes aren't what define me. Your mistakes aren't what define you. Your sin is covered by something that is great called grace. 
And maybe, just maybe, we need to take these words of Jesus that say, I don't condemn you either, and memorize them. Maybe put them in your car. The the places where you're reminded of your, your inabilities. The places where you're reminded of your mistakes. Maybe you put them above the computer screen. You can't control where you click and say, I don't condemn you of this. You don't have to live this way. Maybe you put it on your mirror and you have body image uh, problems and that's a real thing. And maybe you put it there and it says, you don't have to think of yourself like this. I don't. Maybe it's, it's on your phone, on your screen. Any place that screams at you with the lies that you have to cover, put that reminder there that says, I don't condemn you anymore. You are lived, you are defined by grace. And take those words every time you walk into those canyons of shame. And as you stand there, surrounded by your accusers, what if you allowed the words of Jesus to come over you? And when you do, listen carefully, because the lies of shame will begin to drop like rocks. Because the truth of Jesus is powerful. And he's speaking to you too. I don't judge you. I don't know you by that. I don't put you in that camp. When shame says you're not good enough, Jesus says, I've formed you in your mother's womb, Psalm 139. I've known you since before you were born. And I'm proud of you. When shame says you're unwanted, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your life is essential. You're you're not just a number. I need you. You are essential to me. When shame says you're guilty, Jesus says, where where are your accusers? I don't see them. When shame says hide, Jesus says, I love every single aspect of yourself from the start of time. Shame wants to define you by what others label you as. And Jesus says, you're perfect the way you are. Come follow me. Shame says, let's make a list of everything that's wrong with me. Jesus says, give me that list. I'm going to put it between my hand and the cross and no one will ever see it anymore. That's what it means to have peace with you. And this is what Jesus offers. I see it no more. Do you know how the Bible describes you? We've talked about this a lot because I love it. You know how the Bible describes you? Read every opening verse to the epistles. That's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. I'm going to miss a couple. Don't, don't judge me. Paul always says this to the saints. To the saints. What's a saint? Someone who's sanctified, set apart for a holy calling. To the saints. That's who you are. You're a saint. Some of you, Dylan, maybe not so much. Never mind, I'm just kidding. You are a saint. There's nothing to be ashamed of. So today, you might have shame built up in you. You might have these places where you're hiding. Here's my challenge to you today. Take them to the cross. Leave them there. Jesus, my accusers, don't say anything in your presence. This is peace with ourselves. It takes a while. It's not something that you're going to be cured of overnight. It took years to get over my middle school happenings. And there's still times where it happens today. When you're reminded that that dreaded Facebook picture comes up of that person and all the feelings come back. 
you're going to be reminded, but then the quick words, I'm not who this person said I am. What does Jesus call me? Loved, perfect. Genesis 2 in a Genesis 3 world. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you call us by name, you call us by how you think of us, and we are beloved in your sight. You knew us before uh, we knew ourselves, and you loved us there. You love us now, even though we've made mistakes. You love us, even though when we find it hard to love ourselves. Jesus, may we bask in your grace instead of basking in our shame. May we believe what you say about us instead of what everyone else says about us. And God, may we take down these fig leaves that keep us from a fuller relationship with you and a relationship with others. May we not hide behind it. Thank you for all of this, Lord. In Jesus' name.